Well, the, the Old Testament repeatedly asserts, going back to Abraham, if not earlier, that the Messiah, when he comes, shall not simply restore Israel, he shall do that, but he shall call the Gentiles. And you see this in Isaiah chapter 60, which was the Old Testament lesson this morning. The wealth of the nations, their kings and their peoples shall stream to the Messiah and into his kingdom. And to some extent, historically, we've seen a substantial fulfillment of that over the last 2,000 years. After all, we have here probably a majority of Gentiles, people from the nations, not from Israel, worshiping Israel's Messiah. So that we can tangibly say we see the substance of what Isaiah prophesied. Now, we move today in this rather strange and seems perennially fascinating story of the Magi, which I just read from Matthew chapter 2. We move to the onset, right, the inception of the fulfillment of all these great messianic promises to the nations, to the Gentiles. We're here before even Cornelius, right? In the book of Acts, Cornelius is the first Gentile who believes the gospel. Turns out he's not the first. These shadowy figures, right, in these folks we have the first Gentiles to come to the brightness of Christ's appearing. That's the significance of this story. And Matthew is so concerned to show the universal range of the Messiah's work that in his gospel, these foreigners are not simply the first Gentiles. They are the first people, period, to come to Jesus. So we'll look at the text under three headings. They're there in your bulletin on page 5. The Magi and the Star, Herod's response to that, and then the worship. So first, the Magi and the Star. Pretty well-known story. I take it for everyone. But verse, verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod, wise men, or Magi, from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, these were the best we can tell, uh, a class of men descending from Babylonian or Persian priest astrologers, Persia and Babylon being east, right, east of Palestine. They would study the stars at a time when there was no hard and fast distinction between astronomy and astrology, between astronomy and basically magic in many cases. And so they would most likely be counselors to eastern kings. Now, magi could also just be rank sorcerers. And the word is used in that sense in Acts chapter 13 of a magician, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. But here there's no explicit, at least explicit, negative judgment on them. They're obviously noblemen. And so they come to Jerusalem. Now, the first century is a time of widespread expectation that a universal ruler would emerge from Judea. There's a sort of messianic electricity in the air. There's a lot of testimony to this in ancient sources. So, for example, Tacitus, Tacitus is not a Jew, 
right? Tacitus, the famous Roman historian, he says this. He says, there was a firm persuasion that around this time, the East was to grow very powerful, and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. So, in verse 2, after they arrive in Jerusalem, the king-seeking magi, they ask, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? Now, if you read this text, Matthew set up a confrontation. Right? He's calling Herod king, and then he has the magi identify the baby Jesus as king. Now, what's, what is stranger than the fact that some Persians, hundreds of miles from Israel, know about the birth of the Messianic king is the method that they use to obtain the knowledge. They say, we saw his star in the east when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So, what are we to make of this star? Right, there's just so much speculation about it, and people have different theories. There's basically three main ideas used to explain the star. One is that it was a comet. Usually, the idea is that it was Halley's Comet. But that doesn't work because comets cross the heavens too quickly to be followed. Halley's Comet appeared too early. It appeared about 12 B.C. The second idea was that it was some kind of supernova. And the third idea, which has some adherence, is that it was a planetary conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, which occurred, according to Kepler, in 7 B.C., And the reason this theory has some adherence is because the timing seems about right. But it doesn't account for the movement. So whatever it was God did with the star, he did it so that through the knowledge these men had of the stars, the creation itself would draw them to worship Christ. That much we can say for sure. Yet, if the heavenly guide is a bit obscure, and it is, There are some things happening here which are much clearer. We know, we know that God reveals himself by his word, right? But also through through nature. We call that redemptive or special revelation and general revelation. In this case, the creation leads these men straight to Jesus. But he does it. God does it in such a way that he's meeting these people where they are. One thing to see in this text, strange as it is, is the infinite mercy of God. He accommodates himself to these men, and and this is putting it charitably, right? Their highly speculative craft of astrology and trying to figure out stuff from the stars. It's a form of quasi-magic at best. And by the way, it should be noted, the Torah forbids this. right? In Deuteronomy 18... Right? Interpreting omens and divination and using the stars is forbidden. And yet these men are seekers to whom God condescends. Right? Even their dubious method, he embraces it. So we have to ask a question. How would they even know to watch the sky? I mean, how would they know to associate any phenomenon with the birth of the king of the Jews? And here we have to remember another important historical fact that 
the Jews were exiled into the east, into what became first Babylon, but later became Persia. They were exiled in the 6th century B.C., and many, perhaps most of them, never came back. Daniel was among the Jews exiled. And remember, Daniel had his own place among the magicians and among the priests of the Babylonian kingdom. So quite possibly these men came from the same set or same sets of court officials that served Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. And it's quite likely then that Jewish messianic expectation fueled the interest of the Magi. It appears they knew something of the Jewish scriptures about the coming of the Messiah. Now, I think we can be a little more specific about what might have fired their imagination. There's a text here that's probably lurking under Matthew's text. It's Numbers 24, and it's the prophecy of Balaam. You might remember him from the book of Numbers. He said this. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So what we have here is a, Balaam's a Gentile prophet. He's a Gentile prophet. He sees a star rising to herald the Messiah. That story is almost certainly echoing under the text of Matthew here. Right, and in addition to that, we have Isaiah 60, which was read, that say that nations and kings will come to the brightness of your rising. Now, these texts are not time-specific, but they seem to provoke interest in the Messiah's appearing, somehow connecting it to the stars. Frankly, one would think this is maybe not the best exegesis of these texts, (laughs) to take the star literally. But there it is. God used it. And there was a star. And it drew them. And so you have like a startling use here of scripture and creation and the natural interests of these people from the East as religiously and theologically dubious as they might have been to bring the very first Gentiles to the Messiah. This story, this scene is the onset of the fulfillment of all the great messianic promises to draw all people from all nations to the light of Christ, even Persian astrologer priests. No one would script it this way. No Torah observant Jew is going to have these people be the first people come to Israel's Messiah. But there it is. Secondly, then, I want to take a minute to look at Herod's reaction. It says when he heard it, he wasn't joyful. He was troubled. All Jerusalem was troubled. This entourage stirred up Herod, and it stirred up the whole city. Now, it's texts like Isaiah 60, kings shall come, which led to the tradition in the church that these were kings. But notice, right, Matthew doesn't say they're kings. And as we've seen, they're almost certainly priests. And there's no way there were three of them. That tradition arises from the fact that they brought three different types of gifts. This would be a fairly large entourage, because both because of the distance. The distance of the journey is like 800 miles, roughly. And also because they stirred up the whole city of Jerusalem. 
And the arrival of three people is not going to accomplish that. So I've said it before here, but we three kings of Orient are, is wrong about the three and wrong about the kings. But the Orient part is good. One out of three is not bad. Um, Be that as it may, Herod is now nervous. Right? This Herod, by this time, had ruled Judea, right, as a Roman province, basically. He had ruled it brutally for over 30 years. He's known to be fragile, too, to be threatened easily by his rivals. This Herod killed his own wife. He killed three of his sons. And the brutal murder of the infants, which he's about to perpetrate, fits perfectly with what we know of his character. And like most wicked kings, he has no use for theology unless he's in a jam. And so he calls the teachers of the law and he calls the chief priests and he inquires of them. Where is the Christ to be born? Notice he doesn't say where is the king of the Jews. That's his title. Herod's the king of the Jews. So he uses the word Christ. But clearly he knew the Christ was to be a king. And he thinks whatever kingdom is associated with this baby is a threat to his kingdom. Herod was half Jewish. He was a Roman puppet. He was not on good terms with the people. So he would would be particularly exposed by a kind of earthly political king, especially one in the Jewish royal Davidic family. And so... In verses 5 and 6, you know, they counsel Herod, right? They dutifully and correctly tell him where the Messiah is to be born, in Bethlehem. They cite this famous prophecy from Micah, 700 years B.C. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, notice the ruler emphasis, who will shepherd my people Israel. So not only do we have a prophecy of the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem, it's clear that this is going to be a ruler, a king of Judean origin. This is not a text which would comfort Herod. He fears this text, but he doesn't submit to it. Right? So what he does next is he calls the Magi secretly. He finds out exactly when the star appeared. Right? And this is the calculation, the basis for the calculation for his later killing of all male infants under two years of age. So when the wise men are done, he sends them off. He sends them to Bethlehem. Remember, they're in Jerusalem right now. Bethlehem's five or six miles away. He says, search carefully for the child. And when you find him, you know, come back and tell me so I can worship too. Now, of course, the locals, like the locals would know of Herod's hypocrisy. This would never fly with them. But these foreigners have no idea. And so here we see, right, a common modus operandi of tyrants. They cover their murderous intentions with piety. They have evangelicals in the White House, right? But to them, right, the compliant evangelicals are just another lobby group to be used and manipulated. So that's Herod's response. 
Third, finally, the worship itself. So if you look at the text, verse 9, they leave the king, and the strange star, which had taken them this far, now leads them to the immediate area where the child is. Westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Stars are pointers. The creation points beyond itself to the light of God, who is light. The light of the one who said, let there be light. Here we need to know one other thing that's important by its absence. None of the chief priests or the scribes or the people, for that matter, go with, go with the men. They don't seem to care. They know that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. They know that people have come from hundreds of miles and the whole city is in an uproar over these visitors. But hey, they got stuff to do. Got to clean the garage. They're just not interested. It's astonishing, really, when you think about it. Meanwhile, these pagans, and I use the word to just mean not, you know, people who are not Jews, Gentiles, they've come hundreds of miles at their own expense, right? bearing the danger and the burden of the journey, carrying expensive gifts. You know what that means? They expected to find him. There's an expectation here. The text is, among other things, an indictment on the religious leadership of Israel. Pouring over the scrolls and pouring over the Torah, right? And knowing the technical details and yet having no lively yearning or, or expectation of the Messiah's coming. Much like the modern church has no lively expectation of the second coming. And Matthew surely wants us to see this. Because in the same gospel, in chapter 12, he will record Jesus telling us that the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, right, a dignitary who is from something like Ethiopia, right, somewhere there, the queen of Sheba, who made a similar journey to see Solomon, Jesus says she will rise up and condemn this generation because something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is, of course, referring to himself. Something greater than Solomon is here, and they greeted it with a yawn. So the wise men, they trek on, and in verse 10 it says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Because they're coming to the fount of joy to concretely and tangibly see this one, whom we have not seen, but Peter tells us, even though we've not seen him, we love him. Joy among the Persians and disinterest among the Jews, even at the beginning of the life of the incarnate word of God. They enter the house. Jesus is not in a manger here. His family and he have a house. The text tells us, and this scene takes place up to two years after his birth, right? Which is why you shouldn't have any, any wise men around your manger scene, but it seems to be the thing. It's a conflation. Um, so they enter the house, they see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Now, listen, this is 300 years before the Council of Nicaea. 
where the church finally clearly said, Jesus is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten of the Father, not made. Right? He's the same substance. He's, he is God incarnate. These men don't know that. Right? They haven't wrestled through 300 years of Christology. But they have an instinct, a divinely given instinct. They don't, see, they're not worth, they don't say, oh, look, it's a cute little baby. And they frolicked with him. It says they worshipped him. I mean, that's a high view of the child of Christ. They're worshipping him because the one in the flesh is God incarnate. It's a remarkable intuition. So you have one humble little house in Bethlehem with some strange people in it. Not from the neighborhood, but from a neighborhood 800 miles away. And you got a baby... And this is where the light of the world first breaks into the nations. And this is where the worship of Christ is first off. And this heavenly light, by the way, signals the end of astrology and the end of planetary deities and the end of using heavenly bodies to determine the fates of men. Because when the light of the world shows up, all that divination and sorcery is gone. And so the whole text is here to stir us with the wonder, the wonder of Gentiles far off, without God, strangers to Israel, strangers to Israel's history and covenant and Torah, being nevertheless granted revelation and light in the Messiah. How far this light has come to find us. Be grateful. Don't take anything for granted. There are not too many Christians at this point, but a good bunch of them are Persians. You've got a strange star, a strange little house church. Finally, a word about these gifts, quickly. The gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, right? There's a lot of speculation, but the gifts are precious and costly, and the point is simple. The point is that these gifts are what they are because the recipient is royalty. Again, remember Isaiah, the wealth of the nations will flow into and enrich the church. And that process begins here. All of you have brought your own gifts and your own talents and your own treasures into this body. And it ends with the nations bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. And as I alluded to earlier, there's an important precedent for this text in the story of the Queen of Sheba a Gentile who comes to visit Solomon, who's another son of David. And what does she bring? She brings him gifts, including gold and spices. That visit of the Queen of Sheba foreshadowed this one of the wise men. And this one foreshadows you and I, Gentiles from the ends of the earth, coming to Christ, laying our treasures in worship at his feet. So I want to make two quick applications. First one I make every year on Epiphany, so you've heard this one before. But I want to commend the wisdom of the church's lectionary, its system of weekly readings to you. If you look at the three readings today, they cohere in a remarkable way. Isaiah 60 is the promise that the nations will come. Matthew 2 is the beginning of the fulfillment. And Ephesians 3 is Paul's inspired commentary. That that fulfillment 
is manifest in the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ, the church, the ecclesia, the congregation of Yahweh. Promise, fulfillment, apostolic interpretation. They're all there in the three readings. Secondly, finally, we're not likely to respond as Herod did to this event. But we may very, very well find ourselves like the chief priests and the scribes. Right? We may have all of our scriptures at hand. Our theology may be wonderful. But we may not be running, waiting, looking to meet Christ, who often appears, right, in strange garb, with weird company that we don't expect. Or we might be like the ordinary folks in Jerusalem. They were disturbed and agitated. You know, people have an emotional response to Christmas. But that's not sufficient. I mean, they're disturbed, but they're not, they're not disturbed enough to go to Bethlehem and worship either. They're not watching. They're not waiting. They're not looking. The Persian astrologer priest Christians have found the pearl of great price and were willing to risk everything, to leave home for years. This is not a get in your car for an afternoon trip to check out if the Messiah is born thing. This is two or three year journey. And they're, they're willing to do that and pour their hard-earned substance out at the feet of the king. And as such, they stand as witnesses to us. For we follow in their train. Right? So let us give ourselves, body and soul, time, talent, treasure to Jesus, the king of the Jews, light to us Gentiles who were dwelling in deep darkness. Amen.